Go and take a seat, please. I remember being in a larger church. We were visiting in Phoenix, Arizona, and when we were going through the services after the kids' praise was dismissed, they would have these numbers that would flash in the bottom right corner. And afterwards, I asked someone what those numbers were, and that's if they're having issues with your kid, they flash the kid's number, and you had to hang your head in shame and go down there and take care of your, take care of your kids. So we won't do that to you, though. Uh, you may get a tap on the shoulder if there's any issues uh, downstairs with your children. Um, I lost the nerve to do it. I had told Steve Krogstad that whenever they said they were moving, I would lead a chant of boos. Um, but, I, but I didn't. But Steve and Mona, we certainly will. Um, we'll miss you guys, but do wish you the best as you get resettled down there in Alabama. We're starting a new series in the book of, of Romans. Um, and I was thinking about introducing Romans. I was reminded of the 1970s when uh, throughout that decade, there really were three hockey teams in the NCAA uh, that would trade back and forth uh, for who was the best university in the nation for ice hockey. Boston University in that decade won the title three times. Uh, University of Wisconsin won it twice and University of Minnesota three times. And that created this really intense rivalry uh, between each of these three schools. And it was near the end of the 1970s that Herb Brooks was asked to put together a U.S. Olympic hockey team. And so where do you think his players came from? This is before you could have professionals on the team. They came from these college players. Um, of the team, 85% of the players came from one of those three schools, University of Boston, University of Wisconsin, and University of Minnesota. And could you imagine what it would be like putting a team where there, there are staunch rivals from these different schools and trying to put them all together onto one team? As the movie Miracle tells the story, in one of the first practices, two of his players begin throwing fists at each other because of an old thing that happened back in the 1976 championship game. And they're trying to settle old scores. And so Brooks knew that his job was to find a way to get these enemies to realize they were actually teammates. So he forced the players to introduce themselves. And so Robert McCallaghan introduced himself, and Coach Brooks asked who he played for. And McCallaghan said, I pray, play for the University of Minnesota. Then Jack O'Callaghan introduced himself, and, and the coach asked him, who do you play for? And he said, I play for Boston University. And practice after practice, Coach Brooks would ask the question, who do you play for? And they would tell whatever school or college they had attended. And it wasn't until after even an exhibition game that finally one of the players, Mike Urizioni, stepped forward and said, I play for the United States of America. And Brooks realized they're finally getting the point of what it means to be a team of people who work together. What this hockey team struggled with is something that I think we all do in life. We develop these categories. We, we have the us and we have the them, the insiders and the outsiders. We, we, we begin to relate to people based on whether they are people who are inside our group or who are outside our group. And this seems to work pretty well until life gets a little complicated and it's hard sometimes to remember who is us and who is them. Watched a few soccer games this week and um, one of them was Luke Crooks from Belgrade. Belgrade was playing Billings Senior. And so I told Chris as I went to watch his son from Belgrade play, I'd put on a hood to make sure nobody from Billings saw me sitting with all the Belgrade players. 
And then yesterday, uh, our kids started soccer, and so Elizabeth is on a team, and Logan Skidmore is on the enemy team. Brindley Sannon was playing right before that, and so one of these games we're going to have to play against Brindley, and I'm going to have to cheer against Brindley. Unless you realize, even when you're playing sports, who is us and who is them? And these are really simple examples, and, and yet they can be more complicated examples. Brian talked a little bit about this. Uh, sometimes you have in a church, you have some people who are Republicans and some people who are Democrats. Somebody just this week was telling about his church where they were having a, 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 um, a, a vigorous discussion. And one of the persons said, you know, I voted Democrat at the last election. And he said, ever since then, he has told that he has noticed other people in church will no longer talk to that individual. Is us a political affiliation or is an us a religious grouping? And there are a lot of dangerous things that happen if we get the categories of us and them wrong. I read this week of a, a guy who is at a predominantly white, rural, uh, urban church, and they hired a firm to come in and, and do some research on the demographics around this larger church. And the demographics came back, and everybody was surprised at how large of a population of East Asians were in that area around them. And so the very next meeting they had, the, the agenda was, should we minister to the Chinese people around us? Some people said that if we welcomed them, being the Chinese, it could pose a problem for us, being the Americans. Or if we reached out to the Chinese, then would they understand our traditions, and our traditions being American traditions? And the person who tells the story said that they were just dumbfounded by the categories because they were not faith categories people were using, but they were nationalistic categories. He said, what if we asked the question, should we Christians reach out to non-Christians? Everyone in the room would have said what? Absolutely. And yet they got the categories wrong. It became about nationality, not about their central faith. And I think in a very similar way, the church in Rome is struggling with their categories of us and them. Too much of what is happening in the church in Rome is rooted in their old categories. Their, their old understanding of, of what makes them who they are, Jew or Gentile. And Paul wants them to come up with a new category. Paul wants, wants them to realize us is Christian, not these ethnic things that have separated us in the past. And so Paul, in a lot of ways, is going to be like Coach Brooks trying to get them not to say, I'm a Jew or a Gentile, but wants them to come forward and say, I am a Christian. This is my first and primary identity. See, after reading very early in Romans, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 320, you're going to come away with the conclusion that apart from the law, the Jews, the Gentiles stand guilty before God. And apart under the law, the Jews stand guilty before God. What Paul wants to do is he wants to level the playing field and help these two groups realize that they're really in the same situation. So Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For God shows no partiality. All who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You see Paul trying to level the playing fields? And had several passages, I decided to just choose two, where Paul emphasizes this notion of all. So Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. Or Romans chapter 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. Paul is saying without Christ, we're all in the same boat. And with Christ, we're all in the same boat together. And so Paul has these reasons why he writes to Romans. And I think two of those main reasons that he writes is, first of all, is to address the tension and the hostility between Jews and Greeks in Rome. Paul begins in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, saying, The gospel came to the Jews first. And I think Paul means this on a lot of different levels, but at the very least, he means this chronologically. We find it from Acts chapter 2, verse 10, the first time that the gospel is preached, that there were some visitors from Rome there. So people have heard the gospel preached in Jerusalem. They take that message back to Rome, and they begin planting churches. And at the very earliest stages in Christianity, you find that the, the, the power brokers of Christianity were those Jewish people. Uh, Acts chapter 15, there's this large gathering of people who come to Jerusalem, and they have a discussion about what will be uh, allowed from the Gentiles. How will they permit, be permitted to enter, and under what circumstances? James uh, finishes that meeting saying, we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. And the we, of course, there's we Jewish Christians. So the, the Jews are the power brokers. The Jews are the ones who are, 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 are making decisions. They have been the, the first recipients of the gospel. They are the, they are the leaders. They are the ones who are making a big difference in the, in the church. And then in AD 49, Emperor Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. A Roman historian, Suetonius, says it this way, since the Jews constantly made disturbances, disturbances at the instigation of Christus, Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome. So all of the Jews are asked to leave. In fact, it's mentioned in Acts chapter 18 also. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So Claudius sees that there are some arguments about this man named Christus, and the agreement is the recognition. They're talking about Christ, and it's creating some dispute amongst the Jews. Claudius doesn't know the, the nuances well enough, and he says, you know what? I don't want to listen to your bickering. If you're a Jew, you have to get out of Rome. And that includes even some Jewish Christians. Priscilla and Aquila, and presumably others, have been asked by Claudius to leave. Now, I want you to imagine what happens that first Sunday when you show up, when those who are the typical leaders of the church are all gone. When we say it's time to sing a song and your song leader has been kicked out, somebody might shyly raise their hand and say, well, I don't know, I, I can try. And so a Gentile guy gets up and he leads the scene. When it comes time to preach, you say, well, our preacher got kicked out. He's over there now. Who's going to preach? And some guy says, I, I don't know, I guess I can try. And he brings the lesson. When it comes to kid classes, somebody heads downstairs and says, I, I, I guess I can try. And so for a five-year, you have this vacuum of leadership, and you have these Gentiles who are stepping up, who are getting more involved, who are, are leading in so many different ways. And then in AD 54, five years later, Claudius dies. And when Claudius dies, that edict is now removed. People can, the Jews can now come back and move back into Rome. And so we find in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, who does Paul greet? He greets Prisca and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus. They have now moved back into Rome. What do you think happens that first Sunday all of the Jews move back and they come into Rome? Somebody says, we're now going to have our song leader and two guys start walking down the aisle. The guy says, well, for the last five years I've been doing songs. And the other guy says, well, 
I'm the, I'm the real song leader. You know that. When it comes time for preaching, two guys start walking down the aisle and the Jewish guy says, I preached here for 15 years before you were even a Christian. And the Gentiles say, I don't know what to do. Go down to the Bible class. And the, the person who's always taught the Bible class goes down there and somebody says, well, I've been teaching it for the last five years. What about the leadership meeting? The Gentiles who are used to being quiet had taken over leadership and now the Jews are coming back and saying, well, hey, I used to be an elder here, so now I'm going to start doing all of this again. And it creates an awful lot of tension, a lot of ethnic tension. People are wondering, what kind of relationship should Jews and Gentiles have with each other? Chapter 14 of Romans is going to find this problem surfaces head on. There are some who Paul calls the weak and some who Paul calls the strong. There are some who will eat certain types of meat and others refuse to do that. Imagine a potluck pre-AD 49, what would and would not be permitted, and now you come back after five years being gone and somebody's serving pork at the potluck. And one of the Jewish guys is saying, no, 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 we got to do this this way. And the Gentiles who've been doing it that way says it's not an issue. And how do you decide? It created tension. It created hostility in the church. Paul tells us there is judgment going both ways. There is a disregard for the need of others. Love is absent and there are not peaceable relationships. And so sometime either in AD 56 or AD 57, uh, two to three years after Claudius dies and people come back, Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome. And one of the issues he deals with is the tension that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. There's a second reason why Paul writes to the church in Rome, and that's because he's planning a missionary visit to Spain. And he wants the church in Rome to help him to be a supporter of his ministry there. So Romans chapter 15, verses 23 through 24. But now with no further place for me in these regions... I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain, for I hope to see you on my journey and to be sent on by you once I have enjoyed your company for a little while. See, as Paul begins his letter, he reminds them that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the purpose of his apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And then Paul will tell us that he is a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Now, we likely wouldn't say this at all, but we probably all have this category in our mind of a people who we hope would never become Christians. Those murderers, those rapists, those thieves, those homosexuals, whatever group of people that would say like, we should do a ministry, but let's just not do a ministry to those people. And for the church in Rome, it would be the barbarians. And guess where the barbarians live? The barbarians live in Spain. The Jewish people, they're up here because they say, at least we're not Gentiles. And Gentiles are up here and they're saying, at least we're not barbarians. And now Paul's saying, I want to go to Spain and I want you to help pay for my trip. I want you to be a supporter of that ministry. And he knows people are going to say, why would we want to be involved in a ministry to Spain? Because that's them. And we just want to do ministry to people like us. So Paul writes to the church. Two main purposes. One is to deal with the hostility between the groups, and the other is to bring them on board for his mission to Spain. And the question becomes, how is he going to accomplish this goal? And he does so by presenting a clear and compelling explanation of the gospel. The simplest way to break down Romans structurally is part one is what happened. Romans chapter one through chapter 11 is an introduction to the gospel. 
It is an introduction to what Christ has done. And then the second part is the so what. Therefore, the implications of what Christ has done for Christian living. See, Paul starts his letter in Romans 1.15. He speaks of his eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you who also are in Rome. When Paul talks about preaching the gospel there, he is not talking about going to the non-Christians in Rome. He is saying to the already Christians in Rome, I want to come in order to preach the gospel to you. So do the Christians in Rome have the gospel? On the one hand, Paul would say, yes, you have the gospel. On the other hand, Paul would say, you have no idea what you have when you say, I have the gospel. And so Paul wants to clarify the impact and the significance of having the gospel. And maybe one way you can think of it is is this way. You're at home and grandma comes over for a visit and grandma's bringing like the world's biggest person. She's almost overburdened, hunched over bringing this person. You say, grandma, why are you carrying such a big purse? And she's like, well, just all the necessary stuff of life is in my purse. He's like, like what? And so grandma pulls out her smartphone and says, I I need to have my phone with me. And so, okay, well, that's great. What else you got in there? Grandma pulls out this big calculator. It's like this big. And you say, grandma, don't you realize that on your phone, there's already a calculator? Oh, I didn't know that. What else you got in there, grandma? And grandma brings out her day planner. It's like this thick and it's heavy and it's, it's, it's weighting grandma down and say, grandma, did you know there's already a calendar in that phone that you're carrying? And grandma says, oh, I, I didn't know that. Grandma is overwhelmed. She's carrying around this little mini radio. Grandma, did you know that your phone can play music? Oh, I didn't know that. So the question is, does grandma know she has a phone? Absolutely. But does grandma have any sense of the how many things she can do with that phone and on that phone, no. When Paul says he is coming, he's eager to preach the gospel, he is not saying, I want to introduce something to you. What he is saying is, I want you to realize that the gospel as Paul presents it will dramatically alter the kinds of relational problems they're having. They're going to start viewing Jews and Gentiles in new ways. They're going to start to look at the barbarians in new ways if they really truly understand the gospel that Paul preaches to them. When Paul preaches to the church in Romans, and when we study Romans, we often do it exclusively from the standpoint of Romans 1 through 11. Uh, I think people think that Romans is written exclusively to answer the question, how do I enter into a saved relationship with God? Romans does help answer that question. It does tackle that question, but that question is actually embedded in a larger question. The question Paul really wants to answer is, what are the implications, both relational and missional, to the saving work of Jesus. Paul believes that if they come to properly understand the gospel, it will impact how they're living and they will start living in a completely new, different, and unique way. See, prior to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there were very fixed ways they categorized people. Jews and Gentiles. And those served them well, so the Gentiles are them, or to the Jew to the Jews, the Gentiles are them, to the Gentiles, the Jews are the thems. And Paul says, if you understand the gospel, you will realize the them is not the Jews. The them is not the Gentiles. Us is those who are followers of Jesus Christ. So Paul gives them a new sense of us. In the language of Jackson Wu, 
The gospel is a grand reorientation of cultural values around Christ. You see how what Paul is going to try and do through Romans, he's going to try and do the very thing that her books tried to do. To get a group of people who think this is us to realize they have a new identity. That those who are formerly enemies are actually teammates. And that the gospel call is to bring unity where there is these old categories of division. So why study Romans? For us today. Um, last I checked, there's not a whole lot of Jew-Gentile issue in our midst. But maybe if you're paying attention to the class, you realize there is some polarization. Different thoughts, different opinions. And people get into their camps. Even within the church, people will start to form their own little camps and say, well, this is us and this is us. And I think Paul will help us to realize when we say us, us is inclusive of every single person. Regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of education, regardless of background, regardless of all of those things, we are the people of God if we have properly understood the gospel to which we will encounter when we read what Paul writes. Who are we? We are the people of God who live for the Son of God. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. Realize this. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. If you want somebody to pray with this morning, if you um, have heard this term gospel and you're not aware of what that means and what that looks like, I invite you to come to the back um, as we stand and sing this next song and we can talk to you about what the gospel is. I invite you to come back while we sing.